Good morning, everybody. Um, before we turn to the scriptures, let me uh, open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we sang, lead me to the cross, and that's where we go this morning. Lord, we need you to lead us to the cross. Help us to see this morning what it is that you've accomplished on our behalf. Lord, fill us with faith to trust that your death was not senseless and in an end, but Lord, it was a gateway to new life. Help us to see and understand from your word. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and our hearts to receive? And Lord, may we see the truth of who you are, even in your death. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can get familiar with a symbol and then just get used to it and, and not really think about it. But have you considered how complicated our relationship as Christians is to the crucifixion of Christ? We just kind of, we don't really think much about it. it just, it's a fact and, and we look at it, but um, we actually have kind of a complicated relationship with this crucifixion uh, because it was a horrendous miscarriage of justice God incarnate was executed, though declared innocent. It, it's horrible. He was tortured to death in, in the most inhumane way possible. And yet, we gain from his cross. And so, we ever, I don't think sometimes we stop to think about it, but the relationship is very complicated uh, because of the nature of it. So this morning, as we look at this crucifixion, uh, as, as Jesus is nailed to the cross, uh, what we want to do is, is try to unpack a little bit of that complicated nature of our relationship to his crucifixion. What does it mean for us? So what we're going to do is we're going to see three things. How we should view it. How should we look at the crucifixion? Why it happened? And then finally, what did it accomplish? What did Jesus do in that? So that's how we're going to uh, move through this, um, this crucifixion. And... Um, Again, it, it's a complicated issue because it was such grotesque injustice, and yet God used it in such a glorious way to accomplish so much. Um, and really, this event, as horrific as it is, has become the symbol of Christianity. It's hanging behind me right now. We think of a cross as a, a decoration or a nice thing to hang around your neck. It, it is a horrible torture device. It was a, a symbol of shame. That's why when Luke talks about it, he hardly even mentions the crucifixion because it was so grotesque and so shameful. And yet we proudly display it as a badge of honor. We wear it as a symbol designating who we are. We put it on our gravestones. Um, we, we take the cross, I think, because it becomes so familiar, we can begin to take it kind of lightly. So let's take a look at this and see what the scripture has for us. And remember, the way Luke is presenting this is he's writing to help disciples understand what they've taught and know it better and be better disciples. And that even includes this. Um, so it begins with this strange story of Simon of Cyrene. Um, he's just dropped in. So Jesus is being led out of the city, carrying his cross, and they grab a man out of the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, and they put the cross on Simon and he carries it. And that's it. That's pretty much all we hear about Simon. Um, he doesn't speak, he's not spoken to, there's no other mention of him in scripture. The more detail we get is in Mark, it mentions his two sons. And that's it. So why is he here? Luke is, is, is very careful in what he includes and what he doesn't include in his, his gospel. So what do we do with Simon of Cyrene? 
And, and I, I was troubled by this as I was reading through and preparing for the sermon. I was like, I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> Are we supposed to emulate him? One of the commentators looked at this story and said, well, um, Simon is a picture of the ideal disciple because Jesus earlier had said, take up your cross and follow me. And isn't that exactly what Simon is doing? Because Luke is very careful. It says that si they put the cross, the cross on Simon, not his cross, not Jesus' cross, but the cross on Simon. And then he mentions specifically that Simon followed behind Jesus. So he's this ideal disciple following after Jesus, carrying a cross. Um, I think that's kind of hinting at it, but it's not quite it, is it? Um, one of the other things that Jesus said that we conveniently left out was, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And there's nothing in here about Simon denying himself or, or, or counting anything against himself. So maybe that's not the best way to read it. Now, you know my old trick as far as we go through this. When Jesus speaks, that's what it's about. When God speaks in the text, that's what the text is about. The same is true here. When Jesus talks, that's what's going on. So let's just hold on to Simon for a minute. Um, what, what's gone on is when they would crucify somebody, the convicted criminal would carry the cross beam of the, the cross on their shoulders out to the place of execution. So they, would, they had um, um, laid this heavy beam across Jesus' shoulders after he's been up for about two days, after he hasn't eaten in two days, after he's been um, beaten and tormented and, and mocked and ridiculed. And so he's going out to the place of execution and he can't carry it. It's, Jesus is not superhuman. We have to remember this is a mortal man here. This is a, a human being who is about to be executed. And so he can't carry this cross. So Simon then takes the burden of the cross and carries it out to the place of execution. Um, this shows Jesus' need, his, his, his weakness. Um, and this is in, in the context of the crucifixion. This is really going to show his weakness. Uh, he is going to die, but... Um, there's more to it than just he's weak. So let's take a look at the next story, and then I'll, I'll loop Simon back in and try to put it together for us. So the next story is, as he's going, a multitude, a great multitude of people are following him. Um, I, this is something that is often said, I believe I have said it myself. Um, the crowds on Monday are yelling, Hosanna, in the name of the Lord, uh, you know, Blessed be the one who comes in, in uh, Jerusalem as he's entering Jerusalem triumphantly. And then on Friday, they're yelling, crucify him. Um, it's possible, maybe even probable, that that's not the same group of people. It's not the fact that everybody in Jerusalem was yelling, Hosanna, when he came in triumphantly. And it's not the case that every single person in Jerusalem was yelling, crucify him. It was his disciples were yelling, Hosanna. A crowd was yelling, crucify him. Now we see a large multitude following him. So it, it's complicated. We, we tend to narrow it down. Don't forget, this is Passover. Jerusalem is bursting with people. One theory that I've got, and I could be wrong, so don't, if you're taking notes, don't write this down. I don't, don't want any proof of this. One theory is that those who were yelling, crucify him, they were probably recruited by the high priests the chief priest had probably recruited this crowd, and then they probably fed the crowd, hey, Barabbas. And so this might have been Barabbas's co-belligerents or his followers or something like that who were yelling, crucify him. 
So it might have just been a, a small group that's just angry and loud and, and in the temp or in the uh, court of uh, Pontius Pilate at the time. What we see here is a group of people that are following him as he's going out to be executed. Now, Luke doesn't give us a whole bunch of details. It's not like they're out there selling popcorn and hot dogs for the great show. We don't hear them yelling anything. They're not tormenting or taunting him or anything. They simply are presented to us as this crowd is following along. And the only mention of any reaction to this is that there are women who are following and they're mourning. Uh, literally in the, in the text it says they are beating their breast and, and mourning for Jesus. So as they go along, the crowd is going and there's a group of women who are mourning the fact that Jesus is going out to be executed. The picture Luke paints there is not a crowd that hates his guts. It's a little bit, it, Luke paints a little bit more of a sympathetic picture at this point. But as they're going, Jesus turns to the women and he says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? So here's what Jesus says to them. He, he corrects the women. He doesn't tell them, you shouldn't be mourning. You should be celebrating now. He doesn't say, you bunch of hypocrites. What he says is he affirms their mourning, but he says, you're mourning in the wrong direction. You're mourning my death. And what I'm here to tell you is my death is not the end. My death is the beginning. Don't mourn for me because I'll rise again in three days. You need to be mourning for this city because what's coming upon this city is going to be horrific. The judgment that is about to befall Jerusalem because of what they're doing to me, it, it will be so bad, people will be asking the mountains to fall on them because that would be a quicker death for them. So he's looking forward to them and he's saying, don't think that this is, oh, poor, poor, pitiful me. I'm going to be victorious through this and Jerusalem is going to suffer. The key to this is what he quotes is, he quotes Hosea, um, Hosea chapter 10. Uh, in, starting in verse 8, he's, it, it, Hosea says, And the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills fall on us. What, what Hosea is saying in that section, and, and this is kind of going to be brought into their thoughts as they hear this, is Hosea is saying, Israel is so wicked. They have been following false gods. They have been turning away from gods for so long that this judgment is going to come upon them. And it's going to be so bad, they're going to ask the mountains to fall on them. Now, in Hosea's context, the immediate fulfillment was when um, Assyria came down and took them away, destroyed Samaria, took all of Israel away. And that was the immediate fulfillment. But what Jesus has just showed us is there's a larger fulfillment coming too. Because not only did they reject God and his law and his prophets, now in this time, they're rejecting God himself. God incarnate walks amongst them, and they're about to execute this man. They're about to put their God to death. So that's the picture. So bringing those two together, it shows that there is a complicated view towards how we should see the crucifixion. And what's going on here is Simon is not, um, Simon is just presented as helping Jesus get to the cross. He's just there to pick up the cross beam and carry it for Jesus so that Jesus may be executed. So in a sense, when we look at the crucifixion, 
there is a sense of anticipation because in Jesus' death, the, the New Testament has a lot to say about that. Our sins will be nailed to that cross when Jesus is crucified. We have a time of confession, a silent confession, and then we receive the, the absolution. We receive the truth that Christ has, has taken our sins away. And we can only get there because we go to the cross. So in a sense, as believers, we look to the cross with anticipation because it is our liberty. It is our freedom from sin. It is the fact that though those people will ask for the hills to fall on them, we don't face that same condemnation. So we look forward to the cross with anticipation. We're walking with Christ to the cross. And at the same time, we have to recognize that the crucifixion of Christ brings judgment. It pictures something very real. That is the rejection of Jesus, the turning away from God, the hatred of God by many people. So we, we look at the cross with mixed emotions. Praise the Lord that we are saved by it, but woe to those who are outside. And so we're called to mourn for those who aren't going to receive the benefit of that. We, we look to them, to them and say, please come to Christ. The judgment is going to fall on you if not. So that's what, how we should view the cross is with this tension, these two ideas of the gross injustice and yet the judgment and then our hope in it all together. It's a complicated picture, and it doesn't really clear it up for us, does it? It should leave us with an emotional tangle of this is wrong, but thank God that he did that. It shouldn't have happened. And then we have to recognize also our part in that because it's our sins that were nailed to the cross in Christ. So uh, we have just a really complicated relationship with the cross, much more complicated than this leads us to believe. Um, we kind of just take it for granted. But when you think about it, think about all the things that go into Jesus being crucified. And it's kind of confusing and a little bit complicated. So that picture of Simon carrying the cross for Jesus so he can get to Calvary on time. Um, how are we supposed to process that? Is that something that we rejoice in? Is that Simon got Jesus to the place where he could be executed? Well, again, that's a complicated issue. So you think of Jesus' return, for example. Jesus in, in Matthew 24 said that the day of his return has been appointed by the Father, and nobody knows it but only the Father. His, his return will happen. And then in 2 Peter 3.12, Peter says that we're looking forward to and hastening the day of his return. The day of his return is going to be a day of judgment. When Jesus returns, he'll raise his saints to new life, and Jesus will install himself as the king of this world, and his saints will reign with him for an appropriately long amount of time. At the end of that period, it's what Revelation calls the second uh, resurrection, where everybody is raised and they're judged. What happens at that second resurrection, at that judgment time, is those who are outside of Christ will be judged for their actions, for everything they've done in their life. And they will be cast into, not hell, but what the, uh, Revelation calls a lake of fire. And sin will be thrown in there. And Satan will be thrown in there. And hell itself will be thrown in there. And it will burn for eternity. So it's, it's a very real picture of what's going to happen at that point. And what we're doing 
as we reach out to our neighbors, our friends, as we call more and more people into the kingdom, is we are working to hasten that day. Do you see how complicated that is? We, we tend not to think about these things. Is there's a sense of joy because it's our deliverance and a sense of dread because it's judgment falling on people. And, and that's the same picture here of Simon helping Jesus get to the cross. Is it is a sense of joy because it's our deliverance and a sense of dread because of what befalls people who are outside that. So our view to that is, is rather complicated. So the next, uh, one little thing I wanted to add real quick, um, verse 31. Uh, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's an interesting little proverb, isn't it? What does green wood do when you throw it on a fire? It pops and it hisses. It doesn't burn. So he says, if they do this while the wood is still wet and it won't burn, imagine what it's going to be like when the fire hits it when it's dry. So again, it's that picture of judgment. I just wanted to explain that because it seems kind of odd sitting there. Um, it, it's, it's talking about that judgment. If they're this wicked now, when the wood's dry and the flame comes, imagine what that's going to be like. It's going to be pretty bad. So then the next question is, why did this happen? Why, did Jesus, why was Jesus crucified? And so here's, how it, here's how the next section. There were two criminals who were brought out and let out to be crucified with him. And they went to the place called the Skull. There they were crucified, or there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. So notice Luke just says they crucified him. Doesn't go into any details, doesn't unpack it, doesn't satisfy our kind of morbid curiosity of what, what happened there. Simply, they were crucified. But there's something else that's going on here is Jesus is brought out with two other criminals. So here we have this picture of this innocent man and two criminals being crucified on that same day. And they came to the place called the Skull. Um, the name of the place, it, is, uh, it, it was a hill outside of Jerusalem, and it kind of had this rocky prominence that kind of stuck out. It looked like a skull. And if you looked at it from a certain angle, they had done some mining underneath it to get some of the sandstone out, and so it looked like it had two eyes, eye sockets. So if you were standing underneath looking at it, it looked like a skull sitting there. Um, in Aramaic, which was the common language of the day, that would have been called Golgotha. And so that was the name that said the place of the skull. In Greek, when they talked about it, they used a Greek term for skull, which was cranion. Cranium, right? Cranion, uh, it, the skull. Um, and so that's what Luke says here is the place of the skull, the cranion. Um, when it gets translated into Latin, it becomes calvarii, which we translate then into English as calvary. So when you hear somebody say calvary, understand it's gone through three languages before it got to us. <laughs> but what calvary means, what the place of the skull, what Golgotha means is this hill outside of Jerusalem that looked like a skull. That's where they did the executions, kind of appropriate. Now, today in Jerusalem, there is a, 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 a Calvary chapel, a chapel built on this place, and there's just a little big chunk of rock in the middle of it, and this is the traditional place of execution um, in, in Jerusalem. It's the tourist destination. Um, there are other places that people think might be the place of the skull. We don't know where it's at. And that's okay. It, it, it's not a special place because Jesus was killed there. Um, it, it, there's no magical power that attends that. So I don't think it's a problem if we continue to go to that one place and see Calvary Chapel and say, yeah, this is where Jesus was crucified. Might well have been. That's immaterial. But all of our gospel writers point out that this is where it was done, at the place of the skull. And again, what that shows me is 
they're not making up some fantastic story. This happened in space and time. Yeah, I remember when that, that guy got shot, it was at 30th and K. And we name a place, and, and yeah, there's something that could have happened there. We remember where that thing was. Where were you when 9-11 happened? You know exactly where you were. That's what the, the gospel writers are doing, is they're saying Jesus was actually crucified, and, and it happened at this specific place, at this specific time. So they take him to the skull, the place of the skull, and they crucify him with a criminal on his left and a criminal on his right. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So here's what we get. We get three events. They've crucified him between two criminals. Jesus then prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then they divide his, his clothing by casting lots. It was common for Roman soldiers when they crucified somebody to take their clothing. They were often clothed, or, uh, crucified either naked or very close to naked. And they the, the soldiers would divide up the clothes. That's how they got a little extra money for their work. Uh, so this is not uncommon that this happened. But those events stacked up like this point to something. They lead us to, to something really significant. The first one is in Isaiah 53. Now, you know Isaiah 53. That's the, the song of the suffering servant. Um, Rainy read from it this morning. But in verse 12, listen to what it says in verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's exactly what has just happened. Is first of all, it says, it makes this huge promise, he will, I will divide to him a portion, he will divide the spoil with the strong. Who divides the spoil with the strong? The victor. When you go into battle and you beat up your enemy, what you gather from them is called the spoil and it's divided up. So the promise at the beginning of verse 12 is he will be triumphant. He's going to defeat his enemies because he's going to divide the spoil. He will be rewarded for what happens. How will he get there? Because he poured out his soul to death. The suffering servant doesn't get to divide the spoil until he's died. Do dead people get a portion of the spoil? Only the living do. You don't give, you don't give stuff to the people who died in battle. You give, give it to the victors. What happened here is it's promising the resurrection in light of his death. And then it says that he's numbered with the transgressors. So picture the three crosses. What you have is two men on each side who know they're guilty. The one, the one criminal said, we are getting what we deserve, but he's innocent. And didn't that happen in the trial with Judas, or I mean with uh, Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate said, I find nothing condemning him to death. He announced him innocent repeatedly. And I said, okay, well, I guess I'll kill him. So what you get is this picture of Jesus the innocent numbered with the transgressors, pouring his soul out to death. And in the midst of that, he prays for the transgressors. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Isaiah was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. This, this was not something Jesus could have fabricated. Is there any way for him or his disciples to fake this event? For him to be crucified between two criminals, there's no way they could do that. They're just fishermen. For him to um, be counted amongst them, 
to pour his soul out to death, and then he prays for, his tr for the transgressors. He prays, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Who's the them? And, and does this conflict with what he's just told the women? He said, don't, don't, pray for, don't mourn for me, mourn for Jerusalem. And then he says, now forgive them? Who he's praying for is those who don't know what they're doing. The Roman soldiers have no clue what's going on. They're just, you know, it's Tuesday, it's another day for crucifixions. It's Friday, let's crucify some more. They're, they're, they have no idea who this is. They just are doing what they've been called to do. The crowd who are out there, even maybe the ones who yelled crucify him, he's praying, Lord, forgive them. They don't understand the magnitude of what they're doing. But what about the leaders? They know exactly what they're doing. We'll see that in a minute. So that's who he's praying for. And he fulfills, in the midst of that, Isaiah, which, like I said, was written about 700 years before his death, or his birth, even. So the other thing that happens there is they're casting lots for his clothing. And for that one, you have to turn back to Psalm 22. So in Psalm 22, it begins um, that it is a psalm of David. Now, when it says a psalm of David, does that mean it's a psalm about David or it's a psalm from David or it's a psalm written in the style or, or speaking in a general way of David? How, who knows? Um, I'm going to go ahead and assume this one is speaking of David wrote it. It sounds kind of Davidic. Um, so if that's true, then this was written about a thousand years before Jesus was even born. And here's what this one says, starting in, in verse 16. It says, dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. And they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. David had predicted exactly what we've just seen happen a thousand years before it happened. He is surrounded by dogs and a company of evildoers. They're standing around accusing him taunting him, making fun of him. They pierced his hands and feet. We don't see in the Gospels anywhere that it says that they, put, they nailed him to the cross. What, what could happen in a crucifixion, there was a number of different ways of doing it, is they might tie the, the uh, victim to the cross beam and then hoist him up and hang him on the, on the upright. And, and they might be tied there, or they might nail through their hands and feet. And we know that that's the case in Jesus' uh, case because... When Thomas is doubting whether Jesus is actually raised from the dead, he says, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hand in the holes in his, in his hands, unless I see the nail prints in his hands. So we know Jesus was nailed to the cross. They actually pierced his hands and his feet. That was not necessarily a common thing a, year, a thousand years before. The Romans pretty much invented crucifixion, or at least perfected it. So this is an amazing prediction that talks about Jesus being crucified exactly and including the Roman soldiers dividing his garments by lot, casting, rolling dice to see who got the clothes. And don't forget these clothes, remember the last thing we heard him clothed in? He'd been sent to Herod, and Herod is like, oh great, do a miracle for me. And Jesus remains silent, so they mock him, they beat him, and then they put glorious clothing on him and send him back to Pilate. So when these guys are casting lots for his clothing, it's the good stuff probably that Herod was wearing that he put on him to, to make fun of him. So these guys are, you know, they're really interested in getting the right clothes. As a matter of fact, the way John explains it, there was a, 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 
outer garment that Jesus wore that had no seams. It was all one woven piece, and they didn't want to tear it up because it was such a precious thing. So that's that picture. So what does that tell us about this, this, uh, um, this crucifixion? Why did this happen? Well, based on what Isaiah said and what David predicted, the reason this happened is because God said it would happen. As a matter of fact, if you flip over to Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John were released, right, they were arrested in the temple and they were beaten and then released, when they come back and they pray together as a church, one of the things they say, starting in verse 27, is says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So as we struggle with the complex nature of the crucifixion, when we ask the question, why did this happen? It was because God's hand had predestined these very things to take place. That sounds cruel. And some people say, oh, that's God is a cosmic uh, child abuser because he killed his son in such horrible way. Nonsense. The son went to the cross, enduring this. He announced beforehand that this is exactly what would happen to him. He had read the scriptures. He understood the scriptures and explained them. So he goes to the cross knowing exactly what's going to happen to him. And he did it for the joy set before him. So this idea of cosmic child abuse is utter nonsense. God, but here's the other part of this. If you discount the idea that God orchestrated this crucifixion of Jesus, if you think this was beyond God's control, everything was beyond God's control then. If he couldn't stop the, the death of his son... How is he going to stop cancer from ravaging your body beyond his control? How is he going to stop the death of a loved one beyond his control? What you wind up with is you wind up in a universe that has no purpose. It's rambling along, making no sense whatsoever. And either you wind up with no God at all or some poor, inept God who's just wringing his hands going, gee, I wish I could do more. That's a chilling universe. I don't want to live in that universe. It scares me. There's no sense in it. But when you back up and you look at the crucifixion of Christ in light of what the scriptures say of it, what we see is a God who can work through all means to accomplish his ends, the salvation of his people. God did not drag Pontius Pilate out and shove his arm up his back and make him say words he didn't want to say. The, the people who are going to torment him in a moment are not going, gee, I wish I could praise him, but the only words that will come out of my mouth are, tor are, are making fun of him. These people are acting exactly as they want to act. They're acting exactly in accordance with what they want to do, and it is exactly how God preordained it to come out. He doesn't force them. He doesn't twist them. He doesn't torture them into doing something they don't want to. They freely choose to do this, and it is exactly how God is orchestrating these things. So when we look at the crucifixion of Christ and we ask why, what we can say is, I don't fully understand why God would choose to do it this way. But this, every instance of this, every ounce of this, every motion in this story is under God's uh, divine sovereign care. They are doing exactly what he has predestined them to do. So when trouble comes into our life, when we struggle, when we have hard times, when, when terrible things befall us, we can look at that and say, God's hand is in this. 
He's working towards a purpose. He's working towards an end. There is something that he's going to accomplish. He is going to direct these evil things in a way that doesn't muddy his hands and in the end accomplishes exactly his purpose. That's a tremendous sense of blessing because what it means is as bad as evil can be, it can't possibly win. It will do exactly what evil wants to do and it will come out exactly the way God intended it to come out. That, that's why we can look at the crucifixion and have a cross on our, our wall and celebrate that. Because as horrific as it is, it's a symbol of God's sovereignty. It's a symbol of God's loving control. He did this to win a people to himself. And he was willing to go to the point where he would crucify his son. Because isn't that what we heard this morning? About it pleased him to crush him from Isaiah 53. God did this. He did it through evil, wicked men who are going to suffer. But he did this. This accomplished his purpose. So why the crucifixion? For that very reason. Because it accomplished God's purpose. So now the last part of it is, what does it accomplish? Oh, they, I got to look at the mocking real quick. I, I want to blow past it because it's so nasty. Um, so th they, they divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but... That's one of the most glorious words in the Bible. Have you ever thought about that? The word but. We were sinners, but God loved us. The crowd was standing by as Jesus is being crucified, but the leaders mocked him. It puts a distance between the crowd and the leaders. The, the crowd is not necessarily part of this, but the leaders are. So they begin to mock him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Do you hear what they just said? They have just confessed he saved others. He saved others. Jesus and his whole ministry, he, at the beginning in Luke chapter 4, remember he read from Isaiah, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set the captives free. I'm going to give sight to the blind. Lame, we're going to walk. And I'll preach the good news of the gospel to the poor. That's what he said he would do. They have just confessed by their own mouth he saved others. So do you see why I said he's not praying for them when he said don't, they don't know what they're doing? These guys know exactly what they're doing. They've confessed he saved others. Now let's see if he can do it for himself. Let's see if he'll actually pull himself down off that cross. That's a wicked, a horrible way to approach that is to acknowledge Jesus has done these great things, but we're going to kill him anyway. That is a hardened heart, and this is the danger of leadership. As they begin to do that, the soldiers who don't really know what's going on, they get in on the game too. So the soldiers begin to mock him. They come up and offer him sour wine. The sour wine was sometimes mixed with um, uh, gall, and the idea was that the bitter wine and this gall would hopefully dull some of the pain that they're sensing on the cross. So they're trying to offer this to him. And then in the same breath, they say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So here, let me dull the pain because you're going to die. But, you know, if you really are the king of the Jews. So they get carried away in that too. And then Luke throws in this, this notice. There's an inscription over him that he was the king of the Jews. So when they would crucify somebody over their head, they would hang a plaque that usually said their name and their crime so that people would know 
who this was and what they had done. So that's what's hanging over top of Jesus is the, the criminal accusation that he's the king of the Jews. That's why he was crucified. So they begin to mock him for that. Lord, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, the last section is, well, what does this accomplish? God has done all of these things. We are, we are mixed emotions towards this crucifixion because it was so cruel, and yet it accomplished so much greatness. Let's take a look now at what that accomplished. So starting in verse 39, one of the criminals who was hanged at him, or hanged, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly for what, uh, and we indeed justly for what we're receiving the due, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Sorry, I mangled that. Let me try it again. And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So the two people hanging on the cross on either side of him, one just is, is ignorant of his guilt, and the other one acknowledges we're guilty and he's innocent. Now, something happened to that man, because in other Gospels it says both the criminals were railing at him. Luke is the only one that records this, that one of the criminals turned at the end, so, so something in what was going on convinced this man in his dying moments that Jesus was the king. Because what he says next is not just your innocence, but he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So that accusation that he's the king of the Jews, this man believed it. Probably couldn't make sense of it because kings aren't crucified. This man is about to die in a few minutes. He can't be the king of the Jews, but somehow the man believes the fact this dying person is the king of the Jews. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I, I want to be part of what happens next. That's what he's calling out to. And then Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a tremendous promise. Did he tell the man, well, if you go off and you accomplish the law um, and you're good enough, then you can come and be with me. Um, it, did he say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm looking now in the scales, you're good and you're bad, and right now your bad outweighs your good, so if you just go do some more good, we'll get you leveled out, and then you'll be with me in paradise. Nonsense. He's hanging on a cross. He's going to die. But Jesus can look at him and say, today, this day, you're going to be with me in paradise. What a huge promise. Isn't that amazing? He, he is going to be with Jesus in paradise even now for one reason. Because he's trusting Jesus, death will issue or will, will in, uh, rush in his kingdom, and he wants to be part of that. And Jesus assures him, My son, you will be part of my kingdom. If there is anybody in the Bible who clearly is saved by faith alone, it's this man. There's nothing he could have done, no act of righteousness he could accomplish at this point. All he can do is trust his Savior. So, what did this accomplish? What does is, what is this crucifixion accomplish for us? It accomplishes our salvation, our freedom from the need to toil under law to accomplish enough good things so that our good and our bad are, are, are weighed. Instead, it shows us we are saved by faith in Christ's crucifixion alone. He could issue him this assurance, you will be with me in paradise even this afternoon once we've both died because of his faith. 
Uh, as a little theological side note here, did Jesus descend into hell? In the Apostles' Creed, when we say the Apostles' Creed, we say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Then he rose on, again on the third day from the dead. So did Jesus go to hell? How could he go to hell if he says, today you're going to be with me in heaven? The, the, the pedigree of the Apostles' Creed is a little mixed. It was formulated around 200 A.D., and there were a number of versions of it until about 750 A.D. when the Roman church finally standardized it. Between those times, there was no addition, no version of the Apostles' Creed that said both he died and he descended into hell. It was the Roman church that mushed those together. And so now it sounds like it's two different things. Jesus died and he descended into hell. The reality probably is what the early church was confessing was he descended into Hades, the place of the dead. So descending into hell or descending into Hades is another way of saying he died. But when the Roman church smushed it all together, now we have death and descent as two different things. So, for example, if you think of Ephesians uh, chapter 4, it says that what does it mean that he ascended into heaven, but that he descended into the lower parts of the earth? So some people say, see, that means that he went to hell. Well, maybe, except hell's not really in the lower parts of the earth. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a medieval Western understanding of hell to say it's in the center of the earth where it's all hot. Um, when it says that he descended into the lower parts of the earth, what it means is he came to live and to dwell with us. He ascended into heaven, but he came to be with us. And I think in the context, when it says he descended into the lower parts of the earth, it means he was laid in a grave. He died, and then he ascended. So there's really nothing in the scriptures that said Jesus went to hell. And if he went to hell after his death, what on earth did his words, his last words, it is finished, mean? If he had to go to hell to suffer more. That's why he can look at this man and say, no, with, with, you will be with me in paradise. We are both going to paradise today. So then what do we do with he descended into hell? It's in the confession. It's been in the confession since 750 AD, or the Apostles' Creed since 750 AD. Um, I think the best way to handle it is, is uh, John Calvin's approach. It's, it's kind of built into the Reformed confessions and, and creeds, is when it says that he went to hell, it means that as he hung on the cross, he was bearing the full brunt of God's wrath against sin. And that is what hell is. Hell is to be in God's presence without the, the cover of Jesus' righteousness and to bear the full brunt of God's anger, God's hatred of your sin, yourself. Jesus on the cross bore that for us. And so in that sense, he did go to hell, but not after he died. He endured the pains of hell on the cross. So I think that's probably the best way to understand that. And we'll get to more of that when we get to his death next week. Because I'm just kind of touching on it now. What he did in dying, what an eternal being does in dying is, is gigantic. What we can see here, though, in, in, in this section is we have this promise. Just like it said in Isaiah, he will divide the spoil among the strong. Jesus can look at us and say, you, you will be with me in paradise because he's risen again, because he's overcome death and hell for us, because he has saved us. And all he's saying is, trust me, put your hope in what I've done. And once you've done that, I can assure you, you'll be with me in paradise, not because of what you do, 
but because of what I've done. That's tremendous good news. So please allow the cross to be complicated. Please allow yourself to have mixed emotions about the cross. Especially as you're reading through the, the Bible this year, you're probably pulling into the New Testament about this time. And so as you read through the Gospels, delight in what's going on in Jesus' ministry. And then as you approach the Passover, feel the conflicted feelings about that. Jesus is about to do something that will set me free at a terrible cost to him. The burden he's going to bear is because of my sin. And let those complicated feelings be there. They should be. But remember, this is God's hand. He has ordained this to happen. And the net result of it is you'll be with him in paradise. As ugly as the crucifixion is, you will be with him in paradise. That's how we should view the, cru the crucifixion. That's how the crucifixion should resonate in our lives and sh we should think about it. It's complicated. It's difficult. It has multiple facets to it. But in the end, it's glorious. Why would God ordain that his son sacrif uh, be sacrificed on a cross? Because in the end, it brings him the maximum amount of glory. It shows the, the, the length to which he would go to save you, to save me. It shows you how horrible sin is. They were uh, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. You look at Jesus, the perfect, the innocent, dying on a cross, and you think that's the, that's the result of my sin. My sin is no small thing. That's the cost. So don't think of sin but lightly. Recognize what's going on. Next week, we'll, we'll see Jesus die and unpack that. Um, not looking forward to it. It's a dark, dark time, literally and, and figuratively, emotionally. But we'll get to the resurrection. So as, as a preacher once said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's good Friday, Jesus is dying, but Sunday's coming, he's going to rise again. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, how amazing it is that you would bleed for me. Lord, no wonder we sing many, many songs about the cross, about the glories of the cross, about leading us to the cross, about our Savior dying. And Lord, I pray that we would see it as a complicated thing, issuing both in blessing and also stirring in us a desire to warn those around us, flee from the wrath to come. Flee to the cross where you'll be shielded. Flee to Christ who took away your sin. So Lord, help us to, to keep that tension, to not resolve it or, or, or ignore it or let it fade away, but let that be a, a part of who we are as, as Christians. When we put on the, the, or the cross around our necks or come and sit in church and see a cross on the wall, Lord, may we still sense the tension of that and the glory of it. Lord, we're grateful that Jesus' death was not his finishing. We're so glad that Jesus is no longer in a grave rotting. But Lord, he's risen again, our triumphant king, so that we can be with him in paradise. Lord, may we invite many others to join us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to do communion as well.